Listener Production. Please leave your message after the tone. Why am I jealous of my ex? I am so stressed all the time. How do I get into a routine? Is TikTok making me anxious? I think I'm being manipulated. Someone told me you could live with half a brain. This is Do You Fucking Mind? Mindset Hacks for a Badass Life. Hosted by me, Alexis Fernandez. All right. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. So today's episode, I'm going to be talking about burnout. I actually did a little vote on which episode you wanted to come out first on my Instagram. If you want to be voting for all this shit, just follow me at Alexis Predez. That's P-R-E-D-E-Z. And then you can be in on all these polls and votes. But basically, I asked, do you want burnout? (laughs) Lol. Do you want me to talk about burnout? Or would you like me to talk about dealing with energy vampires. And I am going to be talking about dealing with energy vampires in an episode coming up, but the requested one was burnout. So today I'm going to be doing a brain fact, which we're talking about the effects of alcohol on your sleep and in particular your REM sleep. Um, There's a full episode that I want to do on this topic um, in the new year. There's so much that I can talk about on this topic, but I just thought I'd summarize it for, you know, the brain fact of today. Then we're going into the body of the episode and then we're going to go into a listener question where I've got some hard-hitting kind of advice to give this bean um, because, I, yeah, anyway, just stay tuned for that one. I'm not even going to get into it now because I just get worked up. Okay, so let's begin with the brain fact of today. Okay, so the brain fact of today is all about why alcohol impacts your quality of sleep. Um, there's this guy called Professor Matt Walker. He's actu- actually brilliant, so go check him out. I believe he has a podcast, but even if you just look him up on YouTube, he's this neuroscientist who focus heavily, focuses heavily on sleep, and he does a lot of brilliant research. Like he, I think he's published over 100 papers. He's, he's absolutely amazing. Anyway, But I was reading up on a lot of the stuff that he talks about. I was watching a lot of his videos and I thought this is just a great brain fact to do. So basically alcohol is something that impacts your sleep negatively and I think it's important to talk about it so you have a better understanding because a lot of people think that they have a low to moderate intake of alcohol but are still consuming one to two drinks an evening or five out of seven evenings. And that actually has an effect on your sleep and how you sleep has an effect on your performance and your mood the following day and basically every day that you're drinking before you're going to sleep and therefore has an impact on your overall quality of life. So I think it's really, really important to understand what it is that's going on in the brain so you can better decide if you're going to be drinking at nighttime before bed and, you know, maybe just choose to be a bit more selective on the times that you drink because I'm all about balance in your life. I'm not saying never drink because, yeah, there's many things you could do in your life that will get you at like peak optimum health, but we also want to strike a balance with things that we also enjoy doing. But let's talk about the effects of alcohol on sleep, on the brain. So the first thing is that alcohol is a sedative, okay? Being sedated and being asleep are two completely different things. When you are sedated, your brain does not go through the normal sleep cycles and the normal um, functions that occur in sleep versus when you fall asleep naturally, okay? And when you like kind of, you know, have that wave of melatonin that helps you fall asleep and then the the dip in um, cortisol and then, of course, you've got these like different cycles of your blood sugar and all of that. All of this stuff is happening when you're naturally falling asleep. Um, When you are sedated, that is a drug that is causing you to basically lose 
consciousness at a certain degree and knocks you out basically. And alcohol is a sedative because it is a depressant. So it is something that depresses the central nervous system, um, which is basically just something that is going to increase inhibition. So you've got excitatory neurotransmitters and you've got inhibitory neurotransmitters and a depressant is something that is going to increase inhibition. That's, you know, less activity in many brain regions. In particular, when we're talking about excitation and when you're talking about alcohol and sedatives like that, you're looking at a lot of inhibition in the cortical regions of the brain, the cortex, that's the outer kind of surface of the brain, but of course in other areas of the brain as well. So also, I've, I've spoken about this before, but just to be very clear, when you refer to a drug or a substance as a depressant, it's not because it causes depression or it's not because it makes you sad. It is because it is depressing the central nervous system. There's a lot of people that don't get sad drinking alcohol. Some people do, some people don't. It's got nothing to do with um, giving you sad thoughts and making you feel sad, Okay. Anyway, so because alcohol is, is a sedative, um, it's like a sleep aid and many people kind of resort to alcohol to help them fall asleep even if it's just one drink because you do. You feel relaxed because you've increased inhibition. You feel like you can kind of easily drift off. This kind of tension, this stress is probably going to subside momentarily or temporarily and that's what kind of helps you kind of, you know, loosen up and basically become sedated. And then in this sedated state, it helps you fall asleep. But the issue is that even though you're dropping into this sleep state or this sedated state, it's actually affecting more so the problems are in the actual entire sleep cycle that you experience throughout the whole night. So the main thing that occurs when you drink alcohol, and even this is studies have shown that this occurs even when you have one or two drinks, is that it breaks your sleep up in an unnatural way. So it makes you wake up throughout the night. And sometimes you're aware that you have woken up throughout the night. And other times you're not aware that you've woken up throughout the night because it's just these minor little, you know, disturbances within your sleep, but it's pulling you out of your sleep cycles. Okay. So as far as these proper sleep cycles, when you're going into like REM sleep and a deep sleep and then a light sleep, it's kind of fragmenting these cycles. And because of that, you're not getting enough or you're not getting proper amounts of time in this restorative phase of sleep or in REM sleep in particular. And REM stands for rapid eye movement. It's a stage of your sleep cycle where obviously your eyes are moving around quickly, but there's a lot of things that are going on within the brain, which is a very restorative, refreshing phase of your sleep, which is crucial um, for you to be able to operate at your like optimum, optimal level when you're awake. Um, and then for a lot of people, we realize that when we've been drinking, even if it's just a few drinks, you might wake up feeling like, oh, I didn't really get a decent sleep. I didn't feel like I, you know, you don't bounce out of bed. You definitely need a, an alarm to get you up. You feel like you could sleep more. You feel a little bit groggy. That's all because your actual sleep has been broken up at, at inappropriate times. Okay. And if you have a lack of quality sleep, because a lot of people bang on about quantity sleep, and I think it's important that you dedicate X amount of hours to be asleep, but then you need to really be focusing on the quality of that sleep because it's no good being knocked out by some sedative for eight hours and then waking up and doing that every single night. That's not quality sleep and that does not equal health. Okay, so we're looking at yes, you want a good enough amount of time to be getting the quality sleep, but your focus is on quality more than anything else. Okay, and if you have a lack of quality sleep, these are the symptoms. You are 
easily stressed, you are more irritable, you are more emotional. So you're less likely to be able to intercept these emotional thoughts with logic and therefore you become more reactive. So you become very emotional, very stressed, reactive, um, upset easily, you get annoyed easily. Your threshold for what you would normally put up with gets reduced. And if you're someone who has alcohol even just a couple of nights a week, like let's say four nights, three nights a week, and even if you're just having one or two drinks, then you're likely not getting quality sleep and that is then going to impact you the following morning or the following day, okay? We're talking about it impacts you emotionally, your focus, your memory, your stress levels, your overwhelm, and this is something where you you can basically, you just know it. You know how you feel the next morning. You're not bouncing out of bed. You're like hitting snooze, hitting snooze, hitting snooze and dragging you up. I have a lot of people that say to me, you know, I, I really struggle to get out of bed in the morning. I really struggle to get up. I just can't get up early. I can't get up earlier. And I can guarantee you that a lot of those people that are writing to me and saying that, I can guarantee, not all, I'm sure, but a lot of people do have alcohol, one drink, two drinks before bed, and that is impacting their ability to get up early. And why? It's because your brain has not rested. It needs more rest. That's why it's happening. So basically, when you're in REM sleep, which is what alcohol kind of breaks up and ruins in your in your sleep cycle, when you when you're in your REM sleep, this is where your hormones get kind of recharged. You know, they might get depleted during the day, and then there's this kind of recharge phase that they go through when you're asleep, as well as a lot of other things. You're getting, you know, cerebral spinal fluid flushing through your brain and kind of doing like maintenance work or clean out, if you like to think of it that way, of your brain. But the hormones that get recharged in your sleep. It's found that just a few glasses of alcohol will reduce how these hormones get replenished in your sleep. And a really key one that's been studied is growth hormone, human growth hormone. So in some cases, it's been seen that it can reduce the replenishment of this human growth hormone in some cases by up to 50%. And this is a hormone that's responsible for repair, muscle repair and building of muscle. So you can imagine how much that would impact you on a physical level. So if you're someone that obviously uses, I mean, everyone should worry about this or care about this, but if you're someone that's using your body a lot, if you're someone that's quite physical, that likes to exercise, that wants to get fitter, that wants to get stronger, then sleep is gold for you. Quality sleep is gold because that's where you recover, that's where you rebuild, so you're able to go out there and then continue to train harder and more effectively. And because alcohol impacts the REM cycle of your sleep as well as your deep sleep, um, you're just not getting this proper hormonal replenishment, okay? And the problem is that when you start relying on alcohol to fall asleep, you create kind of a bad habit in the brain and it becomes harder and harder to fall asleep without something like a sedative, like an alcohol or, you know, some people take, you know, benzos to fall asleep and things like that, like these these um, central nervous system depressants. Um, and then you're making it really hard for your brain to then return back to its natural way of letting you fall asleep, you know, with that you know, that natural wave of tiredness that comes over and then you take yourself to bed and then you drift off into a sleep. A lot of people are not used to falling asleep naturally. So they're trying to either exhaust themselves until they're just collapsing or they're taking some sort of a sedative. It also increases insomnia. So while alcohol will help you fall asleep, it's going to increase the rates of insomnia and you're waking up throughout the night. And then for certain cases, it's going to be really difficult to fall back asleep at night. Um, and then 
it also increases the chances of sleep apnea and sleep apnea where you're, you know, you're stopping breathing throughout the night. Sometimes for some people it also in, in, increases their snoring as well. Um, and then of course, if you've got sleep apnea, that's going to be affecting your memory, your mood, your focus, your attention, all of that, because you're not getting quality sleep. You're not getting oxygen, adequate amounts of oxygen to the brain when you're asleep. Um, and then of course, people who drink heavily, before bed will also struggle to sleep because the liver is doing so much work at this time and that causes people to wake up. It's it's kind of fucking around with your blood alcohol levels and your um, your glucose levels. There's These levels are just out of whack so it's causing you to like wake up, go back to sleep, wake up, go back to sleep. Um, so you should be having around four to five cycles of from light sleep, REM and deep sleep four to five cycles in your whole night. Um, and if you're not getting that, you're probably going to be feeling kind of tired, lethargic, moody, emotional the next day. So that is my little hot tip on alcohol and its effects on REM and sleep. Uh, if you're someone that is struggling with your sleep and you're really working on cleaning up your sleep hygiene, maybe try to limit the nights that you are drinking. And if you are going to drink, maybe try – you know, instead, say you're someone that likes to drink on weekends, maybe try to have some drinks at lunch instead of drinks at dinner and see if that changes. And if you're going to get wasted, doesn't matter if it's lunch or dinner, it's going to be affecting you. But if you're just having one or two drinks, then try and do, oh, let's go out for a nice lunch instead. I can have those drinks and then not drink for hours and hours and hours before I go to sleep and see if that changes. But you are definitely going to notice a difference. If you're someone who has insomnia, cut out alcohol altogether for weeks and see how that affects your sleep. And it should positively impact your sleep quality. Okay, good times. Now, we are getting straight into the podcast topic of today and we are talking about burnout. So firstly, what is burnout? Burnout is mainly referred to in a work sense, in a work environment, because most cases of burnout are, you know, it's people reporting or talking about a lot of stress related to their work. So that is definitely the case for a lot of, for most people with burnout, I would imagine, but burnout is not exclusive to your work. It can happen in many other areas of your life. And it is all work related, but you've got to look at what, like, what do you deem work to be? There's a lot of unpaid work that people do. You know, you could be, you know, overwhelmed with the amount of, you know, you're, you're doing all the house work the old, you know, the, the, the parenting, or you could have someone, you could be someone with a sick parent and you are their full-time carer. And that is a huge workload. Um, but it's not a paid job, but it's still work. Okay. So it ultimately does come down to work, but keep in mind that work encompasses a lot more than what people initially might think of. Um, okay. So technically burnout is described as a state of complete mental, physical, and emotional exhaustion. It's where you constantly feel swamped. It's difficult to engage in activities that you normally would find entertaining or you normally would find meaningful. You don't care as much about the things that are important to you. You're feeling hopeless. You have a short temper. You also don't dedicate time to things outside of this work that I'm referring to, whether it be your job or whether it be you as, you know, at home or as a carer. Um, you don't dedicate time to things outside of that because this thing is consuming all of your energy. You're kind of feeling like you're drowning in shit to do and you also have difficulty sleeping, okay? Now, this is currently not in the DSM-5, 
but it is reported alongside a whole lot of other things like stress and things like that. Now, it happens due to ongoing, prolonged, and excessive emotional, physical, and mental stress, okay? Now, let's talk about the difference between stress and burnout because they are closely related. Burnout is not completely separate from chronic stress, but instead you want to look at it as the far end of the spectrum of chronic stress, okay? So at the very end of chronic stress, when you've been under chronic stress repeatedly again and again and again and overwhelm, okay, then you're going to have these symptoms of burnout. But stress can exist on its own without you being burnt out. And that's where, you know, you could be highly stressed, but you still want to engage in activities outside of it. It's, you know, some people have a very highly stressful life, but it doesn't cut out their enthusiasm for other areas of their life. And it doesn't cut out their willingness to do things. And it doesn't necessarily make them feel hopeless and things like that. So that's where it differs. But you kind of want to look at burnout as being a form of stress, but it's the the extreme end of stress where you are just, you've completely depleted yourself and then you're feeling all these symptoms that I just mentioned, okay? But I wouldn't say that they're separate things because they're certainly not. Um, also, is burnout depression and how, is it linked? Burnout can cause a depressive episode, but depression does not cause burnout, okay? So they can be associated, but depression isn't causing the burnout, although some people may have burnout and depression. Okay, so now that we understand what burnout is, and if you've someone, I think a lot of us would have experienced burnout in some way, shape or form. And it's very, it's a different experience for a lot of people. So for some people, it's, you know, very specific to one big thing that was happening in their life where they were overwhelmed with a lot of stress. Maybe work was just really, really full on at that time. Maybe they just weren't, things weren't going well for them. They were chasing their tail. They were really like inundated with a lot of work. And then after a few months, it eased up. And then, of course, their burnout also went away because they found balance again in their life. And then there's people who, you know, seem to live a life where it's just constant and they're always in this state of burnout for a very, very long time. And normally, if you're in a state of burnout for a very long time, you're you're likely to have more physical symptoms and possibly health issues as well if it's for a very, very prolonged period of time. Uh, But now that we understand burnout, I think most of us can be like, oh, yeah, I've experienced that at some point in my life or I know someone who definitely has experienced it or my partner's currently going through that or whatever. Like it's it's something that I think most of us could relate to directly or indirectly. Um, So now I want you to – there's a few steps that I want to go through for how to deal with with burnout. The first one is identify. So I've given you all the symptoms of what it looks like, what could cause it. Just take a moment. And if you think that you are experiencing burnout, ask yourself those questions and really like work through those questions and see, does this resonate with me? Do I, am I like, yes, that's me. That's exactly how I'm feeling right now. So the first one is to identify. The second thing that I want you to do, I've got eight points here. Okay. So (laughs) good times. Um, The second thing that I want you to do is to Write down everything right now in your life that you believe that you are responsible for. This could be work tasks, especially if you believe your burnout is work-related. Get specific on what all these tasks are. Don't just write work, write, I've got to, I'm, I'm supposed to be in charge of this. I'm managing this. I'm supposed to be doing this on a weekly basis. I'm supposed to be submitting this. Like write it all down. Work, home tasks, life admin tasks, your finances. A lot of financial stress could create more of a burden, which then increases your burnout in another area. So your finances and other responsibilities that you have that you feel like you, that are weighing you down and making you feel this way. 
I want you to write it all down, ideally on like a big sheet of paper so it's all in front of you and it's clear, almost like a big chart. Better than a list. I think it's better than doing a list because you're able to kind of look at it all. And the reason I say to write it down is because when it's all in your head, you'll be focusing on one thing and forgetting something else. Then you focus on another thing, you forget about the other thing. You want to lay it all down, get it off your head and onto paper or out of your head and onto paper. And then we've got something to work with here. It's in front of us. Then the next thing that I want you to do, step three, is to find areas where you can surrender some level of control. You don't have to completely get rid of certain things. That's later in the list of things to do. But there's certain things where you can surrender some control, like offloading certain responsibilities, like you can still be a part of a task, but giving part of those responsibilities to somebody else. And a prime example of this, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a mother, and she was saying that, this is months ago, and she was saying that she was feeling quite burnt out um, and she was, had young kids, a baby and a kid, like a toddler probably, was stay at home, took care of the home. And she said that even when her husband was home parenting, looking after the kids, she still felt that she couldn't relax because she was so used to being at home and taking care of the kids. Every time her husband would be caring for the kids, she'd be telling him what to do. She'd, and, and she was like, he's not even asking for my advice. He's doing his own thing. He's fine. But I'm there telling him, no, if you do it this way, it's quicker. Oh, you're taking too long doing it that way. Oh, and then she realized, she's like, wait a minute, he's going to get it done. The kids are fine. Like it's just not getting it done my way. Just because I've got a better way or a faster way of doing it, I need to relinquish some of this control. So then she started every time she, you know, if the husband was at home, and he was with the kids, she'd be like, I'm just going to leave the house now. Because if I'm in the house, I'm trying to control something that I don't need to be controlling. Like that, he's got it under control. I'm causing more stress on myself than necessary. So she would then leave the house. And she started doing that more and more and more until it got to a point where she's like, I'm not thinking about it anymore. I know they've got it under control. And then she was able to then be at home around watching him parent different to how she would do things differently. Maybe it's, you know, not the way she would want to do it, but then feel like I don't have to control the situation. They're fine. I just am stressing because I feel like I'm a bit of a perfectionist and I need to have everything under my kind of control. So that's an example of a way that you can kind of release control. Just because someone's not doing it the way you're doing it, is there something that you can offload to someone else and be like, I'm okay with you doing it differently to how I would do it, but please just do some of this, okay? And I promise to not control you when you do it. Is it help with your children? Is it help with your job at work? Is there something, I've got a good friend of mine and she's always under so much stress at work and it gives me just, just hearing her talk about it makes me feel like, oh, stress that I can't even help her. And I always say to her, I'm like, you need to speak to your boss and say, I'm good at these things and I'm semi-good at these things. Where do you want me? Because I can't do it all. You know, like you've got to speak to your strengths and tell your managers, like I I do very well here and I can make some changes in this business here. But if you're spreading me too thin, I can't shine and I can't make the improvements that you want to see in this area. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one or the other, but I can't be brilliant here and also do all these other tasks. It's okay to say to your employer, I cannot do the workload that you are asking me to do. It does not mean that you're a failure and it does not mean that you're not good at your job. If anything, I would respect someone coming to me saying, look, it's just too much. However, I'm brilliant at this. I know I can perform on this. Let me focus on this. You know, give me a chance to make this my baby and relinquish all these other responsibilities and watch how I can really make a difference here. Okay, so that's another example. Is there, you know, are there friends 
you know, people as a friend, I want to help. And sometimes friends don't even know that help is needed because you're not asking for it. A lot of people feel that they just can't ask for help. Um, but if a friend reached out to me and say, Hey, could you possibly like twice a month, maybe do this thing for me? Cause I'm really stressed. Like, could you walk my dog twice a month? Cause I'm just, I would want to do that, you know, because I'd want to help my friend. Um, so maybe you could just ask your friend to do something once a month, once a fortnight. And you know, a lot of the time your friends are willing to help you siblings, but like, where can you surrender control on certain things? Look at that chart. And you've got to start culling, 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 culling. You can't, it's not to say that you can't be involved in certain things, but you need to not be in charge of everything because that is how burnout happens. The next thing that I want you to do, step four, is cut back on commitments. So nothing is more important than your mental health. Nothing is more important than your mental health because without your mental health, what do you have? What can you experience? If you don't have your health mentally, what is there to experience other than intense amounts of turmoil and suffering, okay? So that has to be your priority. And then when that becomes your priority, everything else works out. Your health physically, your relationships, your productivity, your sleep, everything starts to get better when you prioritize your mental health, okay? So when I say cut back on commitments, I think a lot of people, you know, it's this hustle culture. You've, you know, you've fucking, oh, you know, you've got to get it done. You've got to, rah, rah, rah. you know, if, if something meant that I could have mental health, good mental health, healthy, you know, whatever, but it meant my goals would be pushed back and will take twice as long to achieve, I would do that. I would make that sacrifice. I would sacrifice I would sacrifice almost anything for me to have good mental health and you need to take on that kind of belief system because that determines the quality of your life and how much time you invest in yourself to make yourself start to feel better and more balanced. So if you've got some goals that you're setting, especially work goals, um, it's not to say don't have those goals if you're feeling burnt out, but it's saying, why don't I grab this goal? look at the goalpost and the timeline that I've set and I'm going to stretch it out now. So instead of expecting myself to do this in six months' time, I'm now going to give myself a year to do it or I'm going to make sure, or I'm only going to expect 80% for the time being of what I was expecting from myself and see if I can strike a balance. Or maybe I need to bring it down to 60% and see how I'm feeling and see if I can strike a balance. And when you strike that balance, when you get to a point where you bring it down, bring it down, bring it down, but start to feel more free, more relaxed, more peace in the mind, more just like, like you can think, you can start getting excited about things, you can start feeling involved in things again. That's the sweet spot. And then you can tinker with that. Then you can play around with it. Then you're like, okay, now I've got the balance. I'm going to rest here for a bit. I'm going to recover for a bit. Now I feel like I'm motivated again to do things. So now I'm going to just up it a little bit. Gauge it. Don't go nuts. Just up it a bit. How am I going? Yeah, I'm going all right because I've taken the rest. I'm good. I can deal with that now. Okay, can I up it a bit more? Yep, good. And then you start to gauge what your optimal workload is. And when you find that, you stay there, okay? Because you get better at things. Challenges come your way. You knock it out. Challenges come your way. You knock it out. You, you, know, you, you accomplish things and you're always progressing in your life. But you don't have to be at 100% capacity with your workload 24-7. That equals burnout. Okay, so prioritize your mental health and cut back on your commitment. Start saying no to a few things. Start only taking the, the, the jobs that you're like, yep, that's what really resonates with me. I'm going to be doing that. Cut back, cut back, cut back. Okay, 
And like I said, only then, only at the point where you find that balance, where you start to notice, because you will notice when you start relinquishing control on certain things and when you start cutting back on commitments, you will 100% get to a point where you'll start to find your peace of mind again. You'll start to be like, oh, I'm not waking up in this like anguish. I'm not waking up feeling absolutely hopeless. I now have, you know, I have excitement now. I'm feeling like I'm capable again. I'm feeling like I could start doing new things again. That's when you know you, you things are, are evening out and you're finding your balance again. The next thing is number five, understand where is it that I can get help? Like I said before, asking people as well. If you can afford it, which is not the case for a lot of people, I totally understand this, but if you can afford it, maybe you can, you know, look for places where you can offload some of the work to somebody else and bring in help financially. But for the most part, for a lot of people who can't afford to be employing someone to help them or to pay someone, not necessarily employing, but to pay someone to do something, then we're looking at where can I get help to do a certain thing, okay? There's many places that you can get help and a lot of this help that I'm referring to could just come down to how can I even out the workload within my own household? And it's not to say that you're asking your partner to just take on more of your work and you do less, but maybe you could swap things around. And another thing about getting help, sometimes you could not necessarily say, like let's say you and your partner or your housemates share the same amount of work in the household. You might say, hey, can we try swapping these tasks, for example? I'm finding this really overwhelming. Can I try doing something else? Can I, you know, like you, do, you need to play around with it and say, where can I get more help? Like I mentioned before, with the friends, with family, with your employer, there's always places that you can be asking for some level of help and also advice is also a good place to start. So obviously this podcast here, but also there's conversation groups there's heaps of groups that of people that you can be talking to online. There's, you know, support out there if you just start to look on people that you can connect with who make you feel emotionally supported as well, but start to look for it. So it's not, as far as getting help, it doesn't always have to be solved financially. It can be solved with, you know, people pulling their weight, changing your jobs around or your, your responsibilities around in the household and finding that balance that works for you. Number six when you are feel, feeling overwhelmed, you need to spend time, you need to allow for silence at some point in your day, every single day. Now, you could call this meditation and that's great, but I'm talking, it's more than great. It's crucial. Meditation is crucial. But more so what I'm talking about right now is when are you ever just you in silence? Do you ever drive without any sound? Just being, just being. Our brains we're not designed to be bombarded 24-7, but it's kind of where we've gotten it to this point. So now I think it's important that knowing what you know with what I've spoken about, about the brain, it's you, we need to find that healthy balance with what you are feeding into your brain. Just like we understand that feeding good food to the body is going to have a very positive impact on how your body performs it's the same as what you're feeding your consciousness all the time or even your subconscious. So if you are burnt out, I mean everyone, but if you are burnt out, try and have moments within the day where there's just silence and peace, okay? Even if it's like five minutes here, five minutes there, I've got to walk to the supermarket, which is three blocks. Can I do it with nothing? 
can I just walk for five minutes or 10 minutes with no stimulation? Can I? Hopefully, yes. Can I go to sleep without anything that's stimulating me? Now, a lot of people, the answer is absolutely not because I've got too much stress in me. I need to distract myself to fall asleep. Understandable, but that's an option. Can I? Maybe not. Can I wake up and just be in silence for five minutes before I, you know, interact with my family or my partner or whatever? Where can you? I know people that will drive home and just sit in their car with nothing because that is like the time where they have no nothing that's pulling them anywhere. I've got one of my friends posted on Instagram recently that, you know, she's got two kids. She goes to the gym early in the morning and she'll go like 10 minutes early. It'll be like 5.20 a.m. And she's there sitting in the car park like, ah. And it's her 10 minutes to do nothing and just sit in silence, no music, no podcast, nothing, 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 just silence. That is so healthy for you to do that. It is so healthy to allow these moments of peace and silence. You don't know the wonders that it does to your brain. It allows your brain to start to calm down. It calms down your nervous system. It's huge, the impact. And because so many of us don't ever do it, we don't realize the benefit of it. And when you start doing it regularly, ideally daily, you will notice a difference, a significant difference in how calm you are, how how like how much you can regulate your emotions a lot better. And then, of course, if you can be doing that while meditating and The difference, of course, with meditating is that you're trying to not focus on things. Sitting there for 10 minutes in silence could still cause you to be like ruminating and thinking about other things. But if you're just sitting there and trying to focus on something unemotional like your breath, which then becomes a meditative state that you get into because you're just – every time your mind wanders, you bring it back, you bring it back, you bring it back. Um, There's guided meditations as well. That obviously really helps reduce those stress levels and helps your brain regions communicate a lot better. Uh, there's just a whole cascade of events that occurs there, which is really beneficial. Okay. Um, well, that was actually my point seven, which was about meditating. So when you meditate, there is, I've got a whole episode and it's about stress and the effects of stress on the brain. I even released it as an encore episode as well. So if you haven't checked that one out, 100% go check it out because it would teach you the kind of the biology of the brain when it's under stress and how you can actually overcome certain aspects of that. And it tells you what happens when your brain is stressed and it's quite scary, but all a lot, if not all of these things can actually be reversed through behaviors that you do. Not just thinking positive thoughts, but legitimate behaviors that you do. Um, meditation is one of those things. And what I say in that episode, highly recommend you go check it out. But when you meditate, you obviously are slipping into a calmer state, but you're getting your prefrontal cortex and your, well, the limbic system, which is comprised of many different parts of the brain, including, you know, your emotional centers and things like that. You're getting those two regions of the brain to start communicating a lot better. When you're stressed, which is the far end, when you're like, well, burnt out, which is the far end of the stress spectrum, it's really difficult for these brain regions to communicate. So what would normally stress you out is now stressing you out probably tenfold because you, you're finding it difficult to intercept your emotions with logical thoughts, okay? So it, it becomes almost a vicious cycle, this catch-22 situation. Meditating is one of the best ways to kind of put the brakes on that cycle. Pause and it allows you to start to get those brain regions communicating. You can start to intercept these highly emotional feelings and thoughts with logic. So that's where you can stop spiraling thoughts. That's when you can stop catastrophizing. That's when you can stop fixating and things like that through practices like meditation. So 
if you don't already meditate. There's so many ways you can meditate. Obviously, silence and just doing it on your own is a great one, but a lot of people struggle to do that initially. Um, you can get so many free meditations on YouTube. You just go to YouTube and Google meditation, 10 minute, whatever. And there's thousands of free meditations. I have my own, you know, meditation. If you go to my website, um, DYFM pod, I never remember my website, dyfmpod.com. And you go to dyfm plus it's 15 bucks a month and you get three 10 minute meditations a week and two pep talks a week, um, for $15 a month. So there's resources everywhere for you to get it, whether you pay for it, whether you get it for free on YouTube, whether you do it yourself, do it is all I have to say. Okay. And then the last one, number eight is you need to get quality sleep. When I, in that episode about stress that I talk about, the, the, the importance of sleep for your stress cannot be emphasized enough. When you sleep, you recover. And we're talking about emotional recovery as well. When you sleep, you consolidate memory. A lot of things that cause us to stress is our inability to focus, our inability to retain information, which just exacerbates our stress. So if you're in a situation where you can um, really replenish your mind your emotions and your body at night, then you're going to notice that your mental health starts to improve every single day. And sleep quality, your, the, the quality of your mornings is determined by the quality of your evenings as well. So if you are somebody who wakes up feeling really, really tired, you need to pay attention to what do the last few hours of bedtime look like for you. Okay. You heard my brain fact about alcohol. If you're someone who's overwhelmed, cut out alcohol for, for a period of time or do one day a week of having a couple of drinks. Like I said, you need to prioritize. Nothing's more important than your mental health. Until you find balance in your life, until you can like bring it back to this homeostasis where you can genuinely be back to your happy, motivated self where you want to be doing things and where you, you, you know, have the energy to do those things, then you need to be sacrificing certain things and alcohol is going to be one of those things. Um, you also need to pay attention to how stimulating the evening is. Eliminate any screens at night, the last hour, ideally the last two hours. This is, you know, I do, you should be doing this regardless, but if you struggle to fall asleep, then 100% you want to be doing this. If you want to read, a book is a phenomenal way to fall asleep. People need to get back to paper books, just a physical book. It's so great to help you fall asleep. You have a backlit thing. There's a light, either, you know, a lamp or something. So it's coming from behind you. It's not coming up to your eyes. You're looking at pages which are backlit and that's a really good way to start to wind down. And books are phenomenal because they're distracting enough that if you're someone who is highly stressed, it's it's an escape. You're not there like ruminating, ruminating, ruminating. You're reading something that's interesting. It's intriguing and you're slowly kind of, you know, dropping into this sleep state. Of course, an audiobook is great as well because you could have the lights off, listen to a qu quietly audiobook, things like that. Okay, but your sleep quality is absolutely crucial. If you sleep with somebody who snores, one of you guys has to get out of that bed even if it's to a couch or to an inflatable mattress. I don't care. I don't value the concept of sleeping next to your partner. People bang on about the idea of, oh, my God, but your longevity, you live longer when you sleep next to someone. Not if they're fucking snoring. I can tell you that for free. If you've got shit sleep 
and you're sleeping next to someone who's snoring 24-7 and then your sleep is shattered for the rest of your life, you are absolutely not going to live longer just because you're lying next to them. And you're probably going to resent them too. So hugging people, oxytocin release, physical touch absolutely does contribute to you living a healthier, happier, longer life. There's a lot of studies based around that. But you lying down next to someone who's lying down, honking and snoring all night long, that is not fucking good for your health, okay? It is not. So if that is the case, you need to do something about it. You just putting up with someone snoring and ruining your quality of sleep is no longer acceptable. So you need to find an alternative. You know, like on the nights where, you know, my partner occasionally snores and if he does, either I or him will go to this little spare bed or a, a, the couch. Like I would infinitely rather sleep on a couch than next to somebody who's snoring. No hate to my partner. I just won't do it anymore because I just really understand the difference between sleep quality and my mental health and happiness the next day versus a shitty sleep, but I got to stay sleep next to my partner. Not worth it. Not worth it. Okay. Sleep, 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 sleep is key. Okay. So those are my main points for overcoming burnout. Number one, identify. Number two, write everything down and look at all of it. Be Become acquainted with every single thing that is your responsibility or that you feel like you need to take control over, including finances, including emotional, including work-related, relationship-related, everything. Then I want you to surrender control on certain things. I also want you to try and cut back on commitments. Ask for help. Spend time in total silence. Start to meditate, ideally daily, and focus on your sleep quality as a major priority. Okay, that is the episode for today. We are now going into the listener question. You have one unheard message. Now, this listener question, please, I think a lot of people will get a lot out of this listener question because I've had a few questions that throughout the last couple of years of the podcast that have been kind of similar to this. And it's really uh, just grinds my gears. So I need to like on your behalf, it grinds my gears on your behalf. Like I feel your pain. So I really just want to cover this story or question. Okay. Hi, Alexis. I'm going to start by saying thank you for being such an absolute rock in my life. Your podcast has gotten me through some scary times and I will always sing your praises. Thank you. It's it's taking a lot to share this right now, but I really feel like I'm at rock bottom and you're the only person in the world who right now, whose opinion I can trust. I cheated on the love of my life and I don't know where to go from here. To give some background, we were together for over six years and we loved each other intensely. It's like we cannot breathe without each other. Red flag. However, there's been some dark times. He has some severe anger issues, which on multiple occasions caused him to act in ways that I think are emotionally abusive. In general, if you think something is emotionally abusive, especially when it's got to do with anger issues, I can you could probably safely say it is, okay? He has never physically harmed me and I don't believe he ever would have. That's another excuse that a lot of people use when they are being emotionally abused. You're like, oh, well, green flag, he's never hit me. Not good enough. Emotional abuse and physical abuse are just as bad as each other, okay? So that's not something to, to put in the good bucket, okay? But he has called me names. He's called me stupid when I've been having a panic attack and he's belittled me for having dreams that don't line up with his. Okay, that's all unacceptable, but anyway. I've always said when things are good, they were beyond perfect, but when things were bad, they were quite frankly terrifying and hopeless. 
I'm literally stopping with every statement because there's something I have to stay, say with every statement. I've mentioned so many times on my podcast that when people say, oh, the highs are so high but the lows are so low, that is an indication of a very unhealthy relationship and it's your way of justifying that you should be staying in this relationship knowing that you are in an unhealthy dynamic. Okay, and you've just said it. This is like a this is a key thing that people who are in unhealthy slash abusive relationships, it is one of the first things that they say, and you've opened with that line. Okay. He's always said he would get help and that it would never happen again, but he refuses to see a therapist and is completely against the idea of medication, so won't see a doctor for fear of being pre- prescribed something. He's not willing to change. That says it all. Because you can still see a doctor and say, I need a referral to someone who can help me. He's refusing to see a a therapist, so a psychologist or a psychiatrist, someone who can offer therapy. Just because you don't want to be on medication does not mean that you can't get help. So much can be done without being medicated. So if he's saying, he says, he always says he would get help and that it will never happen again, but then refuses to see a therapist. So he's a walking contradiction is basically what you're saying. Um, This guy's pissing me off anyway already. We've broken up several times over the years as a result of sudden and extreme outbursts of his rage. But despite it, we've always come back to each other and been able to talk it through. And once we have, it's like a dream. Do you know why it's a dream? It's not a dream because the relationship's so great. It's a dream because the adrenaline and the the intense stress that you are under when times are bad, when it finally gets good again, it is like this relief. You're experiencing relief and euphoria that it's not as bad as what it is. The healthiest relationships feel quite calm, actually. It's not this euphoric, oh my God, because there's nothing to fear. In a truly healthy relationship, these crazy like, oh my God, it's a dream, it's a dream, it's a, it doesn't happen. Because you're both each other's equal, you both treat each other with respect and in in the replacement of this like (gasps) is this knowing, calm, comfortable security, okay? If you've – at one point have you mentioned the word security? You've not – you don't feel that with this man. Moving on. Once, okay, so you said we've been able to talk and and once we have, it's like a dream. Now, I recently moved out of the country to follow my dream of studying in Paris. Yes, yes, yes. I'm so proud of you. I love that. This is something we fought about again and again because to him, it was financially irresponsible and he couldn't understand why I wouldn't just study at home. Of course, he's not going to understand. He's trying to control you. Of course, he doesn't understand. But I knew in my heart that I needed to take the step for myself. That is your instincts telling you fucking run run and I'm glad you did. So we were trying so we were trying out long distance. We have always trusted each other. Okay. Beyond belief. What do you mean by trust? Like what do you mean? Because do you trust I don't know. Like okay, trusting each other as far as infidelity, fine. Maybe that's what you're referring to. But someone who has rage outbursts, I wouldn't trust. I would find it very difficult to trust someone with rage outbursts because when is it going to happen? How can you predict it and how they're going to respond, how they're going to behave? That's not someone who I would feel very secure and trustworthy of. But anyway, moving on. 
We've always trusted each other beyond belief. We both have really strong opinions about cheating. Fair enough. And to us, it's the worst thing imaginable that you could do to someone you love. I think abuse is actually the worst thing imaginable you could do to someone you love, far more than infidelity, far more than infidelity. I'm not an advocate of infidelity. I think it's awful. I personally have been on the receiving end of infidelity numerous times and it's been horrible every time. However, worse than infidelity is abuse by far, okay, because – well, I'll, I'll touch on that later. I honestly to this day cannot fathom how I could have done it. I can. I met someone and we became friends very quickly. I never felt anything close to a romantic or sexual attraction to him. But one night we were drinking and he made a move and I just kind of went with it. I knew it was wrong. I felt disgusting. We were together for maybe a minute before it stopped, but I finally came to my senses. I wanted to die. I couldn't live with myself for this. I told my boyfriend the next day, as you'd imagine, it wasn't pretty. Of course, I understood he would be furious, would probably hate me, and I felt deserving of that hate. I never asked for forgiveness and I knew there wasn't anything I could say to make it okay. It just wasn't okay. I started receiving some very scary phone calls and texts from him, constantly threatening to come over here and kill the guy I cheated on him with. That, like, can't, the guy's done nothing to you. But anyway, he threatened to destroy my life and tell everyone I knew what has happened. Babe, honestly... If I was dating someone who was that that angry and that rage-filled and threatening me like that, I genuinely would rather people know that I cheated than deal with that. I'd say, you know what? Go public, mate. Go public and leave me alone. That's what I would do. Weeks went by of this to a point where he eventually told me he wanted me to die in a fire. He sent the same text to my mum about me. This obviously was horrible. It killed me and put me in a deep depression combined with the guilt of what I had done to him. But I knew that he was struggling and his alcohol abuse was driving him to act out like this. He wanted to hurt me back. I made him feel hopeless, so of course he would want me to feel the same. It's funny how all of a sudden you have to be accountable for what you've done, but he takes zero accountability for the abuse that he's, you know, exposed you to for six years. Funny. Hilarious. Okay. Oh, it's making me sick. I actually feel sick. I need to like go and get it like a cappuccino or something. A couple of months have gone past now and we've spoken calmly and sober a few times and have both discussed our perspectives and apologized for the way we have hurt each other. Well, that's good. We understand that if we were to repair anything, it would take in immense amounts of work on both parts. Yes, it absolutely would. We are aware that our relationship wasn't as healthy as we once thought. Good. And we are both projecting our own pain and traumas onto each other. The amazing thing to me is that even after all of this, we still love each other so deeply and wouldn't and would do anything to be together again. Babe, love is not enough. Ever. No matter what. People say love conquers all. Love does not conquer all. Love is not enough. You can love someone and be absolutely the worst match in the world. You could love someone and they abuse you. Not enough. You could love someone and there's no mutual respect. That's not enough to equal a healthy relationship. Love is not enough. It's one facet and not even the biggest one, unfortunately. I'm talking about for like a healthy relationship. If you want an unhealthy relationship, proceed. I believe that we could both agree to start couples therapy 
Sorry, I believe that if we could both agree to start couples therapy, then we could make steps towards being together again. However, my mum and my best friend will never understand why I would want to do that. I agree. I, I get why they don't understand. They adore you. They can see the pain you're in. They can see what you've been subjected to. Of course, they're not going to understand. I've tried to talk to them about it and they just become angry at the thought of me going back to someone who in their eyes has hurt me for years. Of course, they're going to feel that way. I feel that way. I don't even know you and I feel that way. For me, it feels like we're meant to be together. You're not. We've heard each other, yes, but there's no one I feel more connected to because you haven't given yourself an opportunity to feel connected to someone else. That's why there's no one you feel more connected to. And I don't want to feel this connected to anyone else. That's because you don't know better. But the moment you meet someone who actually respects you, who actually legitimately has your best interest at heart, then that will change. I love him more than anything for now. And I know he loves me the same. No, he doesn't. I'm sorry. He's disrespecting you. He's hurting you. He's projecting on you. Real love, real love is wanting the best for someone even if you can't have them. That's real love. It's Buddha even put it where to like something, to lust and to love something is to see a flower and to pick it. But to love it is to see it and leave it so it can continue to blossom. Okay? This cunt. I'm sorry. Just, yeah. Anyway. I love him more than anything and I know he loves me the same. He's willing to work through everything with me, but he's not willing to go to therapy. This is like a fraction of the story, but I hope the gist of it is there. I just really don't know where to go from here. I feel like no one will understand and will only be angry with me if I decide to get back with him. I wonder why. I do have some fear that we might end up in a bad place again, that what I did would just be fuel for the next fire. But I can't stop feeling how I feel for him and I don't want to live a life without him. He is everything to me. Thank you so much for reading all of this. If you do have the time to respond, I would be eternally grateful. Firstly, I really appreciate you sending me this story. I really, really do. But these are your two options. Don't get back together with him and give yourself the opportunity of truly, truly healing, which will take time. It doesn't happen overnight. You're getting over a heartbreak. You're getting over someone that, you know, has been a very important person in your life for a very long time. But you truly give yourself the opportunity to be happy, truly happy, to live a life on your terms, to experience things in your life that you can experience, things that you wouldn't be able to do being in this relationship. Or the other path, oh, and then, and then on top of that, potentially finding and likely, not just potentially, but likely finding a relationship where there's true respect, true, like real love, where there's this calm sense of security, okay? Or staying with him and nothing changing, okay? This guy won't go to therapy. You're already saying that you already fear that you're going to end up in a bad place. Um, what you did would be fuel for the next fire. He's, he's saying that he wants you, he's said in the past that he wants you dead. He's threatened you with all these things, what makes you think he's changed? Other than the fact that you're not with him and he wants to be back with you, what has actually changed? Nothing. He's not going to therapy. He refuses because he has the excuse of medication when most of therapy is not about medication. It's about behavioral intervention, thought interventions and things like that. So basically you've got leave now, suffer or, or yeah, be in pain, for some period of time and then recover, heal and have the potential to live a life beyond what you could imagine for yourself right now or stay in this relationship and suffer indefinitely. They are your options. 
And that is why your sister and your mother are looking at you being like, no, don't fucking don't. They're saying what's happening. And you are saying it too. Because if you knew, if you knew that he was the right decision, you wouldn't have written into me. You know that staying with him equals a life of suffering. Okay? Because that's what it was the last six years. He's given you a track record. You have a track record. You've got a six-year resume to go off. So you can look at that and say, based on what I know, I'm going to make a very, very informed decision. Or you can throw all that in the bin and be like, but he might change. So they're your two options. But I've been where you are. Apart from the, the kissing someone else, I've been with someone very much like that. I'm talking like almost to the T and it was fucking terrifying and I thought that I would die without him and I thought that he was the love of my life and then it all fell apart spectacularly in my face and in hindsight it was that falling apart was the best thing that ever happened to me. Had I stayed in that relationship, I would have been a miserable shell of a human being. I was already turning into a shell of a human being. I can guarantee that your mum and your sister probably see a different version of you when you're with him than when you're not. It is an abusive relationship, end of story. I'm not even going to address the fact that you kiss someone else because it's no wonder you're probably trying to escape. I'm not trying to excuse, but it's funny how all of these, oh, I want you to die in a fire. I don't want you to, so I can abuse you, but you go and kiss someone and now you're the one that needs to die in a fire. There is no words. There's no fucking words. Anyway, that is my advice to you. I really am grateful that you wrote in to me. I hope some of this cuts through. You do have the potential to have the best fucking life for yourself, but only you can make that decision. Think long and hard about it. Don't even think long about it. Think short and hard about it. Make a decision. All right. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I love you guys so much. If you do want to send in your questions, you can do it via the website at dyfmpod.com or you can email me at info at dyfmpod.com. Love you guys so much. And as always, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Duncan.